Hi everyone, my name is Michelle O'Neill and I'm the president of the ACTU and I want to welcome you all to our Emergency Superannuation Summit. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we're all on today and I'm here on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my respects to their elders past and present and it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. And I want to thank all the panellists who have agreed to be part of today's discussion and also to Jamila Rizvi who is hosting today's event for us. I want to welcome all the workers out there who've zoomed into this, our important National Emergency Superannuation Summit. And superannuation is about working people having enough to live with dignity in retirement, not poverty. When it comes to the retirement prospects of Australian workers, there is no more important issue than protecting the retirement saving systems we've built from attack. At a time of great uncertainty, the Morrison government and sections of big business have thrown back into question the legislated increase to the superannuation guarantee and the fundamentals of the system itself. This does nothing to generate, but generate further concern and anxiety for working people. And of course, it is actually a plan to punish the very people who have got us through this pandemic. Workers have paid a huge price to keep us all safe. They've lost hours, pay and jobs. And many have run out of sick leave, annual leave and long service leave. Today, the average Australian will run out of retirement savings 10 years before they die. Over 70% of women have estimated balances under 150,000 and over a quarter of women have balances of less than $50,000. This sees them retiring with half as much superannuation as men, which is one of the reasons why older women are the fastest group amongst homeless, a growing group amongst homeless Australians. The cost to delaying the legislated increase to the superannuation guarantee will be enormous. A typical nurse will be more than $120,000 worse off at their retirement, and a typical early educator would be more than $80,000 worse off on retirement. This shortfall only gets covered by people working longer into their retirement years or having to rely on an inadequate pension to survive in old age. For many Australians, the notion of working into their 70s is a frightening reality. And for some, it is physically impossible, meaning they'll simply finish their working lives either broken or with insufficient funds to retire with dignity. This is why the union movement fought so hard for superannuation in the first place. And we're honoured to have one of the architects of the system with us today in Bill Kelty. But it's also why the initiative is the envy of the world and has been embraced by business leaders, economists, politicians from across the political spectrum, all here today, because this issue should be above politics. It's about the future of our country regarding a great Australian value, that of fairness and dignity. We simply can't let older Australians retire and die in poverty. But rather than seeking to improve workers' retirement savings, what we have seen, as Paul Keating has put, is super deniers to, uh, aiming at picking apart the system. To some in the government and big business, superannuation is a solution to every problem except retirement. A recession? Cut super. Left out in the cold by the government during the pandemic? Gut your super. Is housing out of reach? Rage your super. 
We've seen policy proposals that some workers shouldn't be entitled to superannuation, returning to the two-tiered retirement system we had in the 60s, where many working people retired into poverty. Others have advocated that workers should be forced to raid their super to just get into the housing market, an idea that will simply push up the price of housing. And rather than adequately support workers, the Morrison government told those that were left out in the cold without support, like casual workers, university workers, visa workers, those at Donata, that they should choose today during a pandemic between poverty in retirement and food on the table. It does feel a lot like Groundhog Day, that we're here again fighting for the superannuation guarantee increase and for the core premises of a system that's the envy of many countries in the world. And we see some sections of the business community and the government making the same arguments they made six years ago, and in fact, some making the same arguments that were made when the superannuation guarantee was first put in place. Their argument is that wages will go up if super goes down. I wanna deal with this myth today once and for all. In 2014, Tony Abbott convinced the parliament to delay the increase in superannuation from 9.5% to 12%. Like today, the delay was justified on the basis of promised wage increases. There was no mechanism set up by the government to deliver that, no requirement on business to pay people more. The government simply said it would happen as if by magic. The problem is that higher wage growth did not eventuate. In fact, since Tony Abbott pronounced that the super delay would be good for Australian wages, we have seen the lowest wage growth on record. Even before the pandemic hit, our wage growth was anemic, with no real growth in real terms since the super freeze started. In fact, at every point since 2014, annual average wage growth has been lower than any period between 1997 and 2014, which even covers the period of the global financial crisis. So the government has a problem this time because we've already seen this movie and we know how it ends. What will happen? Well, we don't have to predict the future, we just have to learn from the past. Because if we look at the same period, 2014 to 20, where we've seen record low wage growth, growth since the super increase was deferred by this government, what do we see? Record high company profitability. It's really quite staggering when you look at the data. Super increases get delayed in 2014 and almost immediately wages dive and profits soar. And you don't have to believe me that employers won't increase wages in the next five years if super is delayed, because they've told us that that's true themselves. Those in the public sector have been told there'll be wage freezes in the coming years as government repays debt accumulated during the crisis. Those in the private sector are barely holding on to their jobs, let alone seeing their employers talk about wage increases. And the government's own Treasury Department, and in fact, now the Treasurer himself, had confirmed that wages will remain stagnant. The legislated increase in the superannuation guarantee goes ahead. It means one thing, and it means it for certain. Australians will have more money flowing into their savings. Increasing super by 2.5% means an average $100,000 at retirement for middle-income workers. This is a huge difference for most Australians, especially women who have much lower super balances. 
The alternative is not more wages. The alternative, put simply, is nothing at all. Women's lower super balances are no accident. There are things we can and must do to improve super. Like the fact that 2.1 million workers who work multiple jobs, many of whom earn less than $450 in a month from one or more of their employers, means they get no super at all on that income. Or the fact that most women don't get paid super when they're on maternity leave. These are the issues we should be addressing. But the government is not interested in these issues. In fact, a spokesperson for the government on super has told us that she's ambivalent about the superannuation increase. Ambivalent. The Assistant Minister for Superannuation told the media, I'll never use that word again. It was a mistake to use a word people don't understand. Ambivalence means you're conflicted. And of course, I'm conflicted and rightly so. What? She apologised for saying she was ambivalent, then said workers were too stupid to understand what was meant. Then used another word that means exactly the same thing. Sorry, not sorry. This is how the government plans to reward workers for their sacrifices, their hard work, their flexibility during a pandemic. They take their super. Well, we have a message for the Australian community. The union movement is not ambivalent or conflicted about your desire, your right to be a dignified retirement. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you to demand your government respects that right and delivers the legislative increase in the superannuation guarantee. We will hold them to account for the promises they made at the last election. Now I want you to hear from some very excellent speakers on our panel today. And we've got some incredible people who have had a role to play in our superannuation system and I look forward to their insights. So once again, thank you very much for joining us today. And now it's over to Jamila. Thanks, Jamila. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you everyone for joining us. My name's Jamila Rizvi and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I am also coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here in Melbourne and pay my respects to Elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge that the Wurundjeri people and indeed First Nations people all over this country from the towns and cities that you're joining us from have been having important conversations like this one for thousands, for tens of thousands of years. So today we join that proud tradition. Friends, we are meeting in truly unprecedented times. And yes, you can all have a chocolate for every time someone on our panel uses that phrase throughout the session. Australia is in recession for the first time since I started primary school and I'm not very young anymore. Wages have stagnated, jobs are being lost and superannuation balances are being raided in order for some Australians just to get by. With compulsory superannuation legislated to rise from 9.5% to 12% over the coming five years, the country is pausing for a moment to ask who's gonna foot that bill, employers or employees? What does an increase in superannuation mean for future salaries? What might a further pause mean for retirees who are falling into poverty later in life? Help, here to help us work out exactly that is a esteemed panel of experts. Uh, they all have resumes long enough to fill the entire session. So I'm going to be very, very brief and forgive me for that. Bill Kelty served as secretary of the ACTU from 1983 to 2000 and was a key player in the Hawke-Keating government's prices and wages accord. 
John Hewson was the Liberal Leader of Opposition from 1990 to 93, when the Keating government made superannuation compulsory. Since leaving politics, John has had a long career in business and academia. Heather Ridout was previously Chief Executive of the Australian Industry Group and more recently Chair of Australian Super, the largest superannuation fund in Australia. She was also a member of the Henry Tax Review. Emma Dawson is the Executive Director of Per Capita, Formerly, she was a senior advisor on digital inclusion at Telstra, executive director of the Institute for a Broadband Enabled Society at the University of Melbourne. And finally, Cherie Clark is an assistant in nursing at an aged care home. If the law is changed for superannuation, she is likely to retire with more than $35,000 less income as her planned retirement age. Each of our panelists is going to speak very briefly, I'm emphasizing briefly now, about their thoughts on the current superannuation debate. And then we'll move to a whole group discussion before taking some questions from those of you who are watching at home and in your offices. And we are going to kick off with Bill Kelty. Thanks very much. Uh, the questions I'd like to address are simply uh, why we introduced the superannuation system, uh, what we said about that superannuation system, and thirdly, deal with some of the current issues about the wages and uh, the uh, reason why we should persist for going to 12. They're the four issues. Uh, when we devised the system, we didn't have a minor objective. We, we wanted to develop the best retirement system in the world, or at least one of those systems. Uh, because the nation was aging, uh, the pension system was inadequate, too many people were falling off the edge. Too many vulnerable people were falling off the edge as they got to retirement and when they got to retirement. Uh, it was a terrible system, really a terrible system. Uh, then, and if you projected it into the future, it only got worse. So we said we needed to make a generational decision to establish one of the best retirement systems in the world based on three premises, superannuation, uh, the pension system and individual contribution, reflecting a social base, a pluralist structure and individual choice, an Australian way of doing things. How was it to be paid for? It was essentially to be paid out of the increased productivity and economic capacity of the nation. As the nation grew, it generated increased productivity, increased wealth, and part of that wealth would be distributed. Part of that wealth would be distributed uh, to retirement system. This was part of a widespread safety net system of wages, high minimum wages, retirement systems, Medicare and the right to education. Four fundamental safety nets underpinning a market-based system. Now that's what set us apart. Now what we said then is relevant because we said that if it comes out of the productive capacity of the nation, then you can make some judgments about what will happen. First of all, less people will be reliant upon the pension, therefore you're able to increase the pension in real terms. Secondly, because it's essentially capital for a long period, it will improve the, the capital base of the country and therefore will reduce or remove the premium which existed in terms of equity for Australian uh, shares. Thirdly, if it is out of the economic capacity of the nation, then it will change the, the 
balance of payments in respect of its current deficit. We will move out of that dependency and move to a surplus in terms of deficit. Unheard of things. Unheard of things. Now, all of those things have occurred. Every one of those things have actually occurred. Now, that's the test. But most importantly, of course, the superannuation balances have increased with 200, 300, 500,000, even more supplements or replaces the pension system. We have a decent retirement system with high levels of dignity. Now that meant workers had choices when they retired, work to buy their car or go take their overseas trip or to support their family. That is, they had dignity, increased dignity and capacity when they needed it most. So the terrible projections of the 1980s never materialised and we have one of the best systems in the world. Now I think that's, that's the important objective. And in doing so, superannuation helped create new industries in the finance industry, infrastructure, across Australia in terms of leisure and retirement industries, that it was part of the economic capacity of the nation. So that's how it's funded and that's why it occurred. Now the third thing is this issue about wages. Michelle's handled the issue, but when we introduced the SGC, in the eight years of the SGC, Wages increased by an average of 3.5 and superannuation increased from 3% to 9%. In, in the last eight years, the SGC has increased by half percent and wages have only changed by 2%. So simply no basis for it. But if you look at other countries, uh, the United States has had no SGC and the real wage improvement for most Americans, zero, zero. Those countries which have really high uh, pension systems, in some cases even better than ours, are not low-wage nations. Now, Germany is not a low-wage nation. The Netherlands is not a low-wage nation. Uh, the Scandinavians are not low-wage nations. That is, what they've been able to do, as you would expect, is to increase superannuation at the same time they increase wages. Now, New Zealand is a direct comparison. They haven't got the SGC but their wages are lower and their pensions are lower in real terms. So there's no argument for this. Now, the reason in conclusion, the last point is why the 12%? Well, the 12% was a commitment. People frame their expectations and their obligations around the 12%. Companies went out and negotiated in advance of that, increasing super from nine to 12 on the basis that there was an expectation and a covenant with the Australian people that superannuation would be increased to 12. Now, to my knowledge, not one candidate, not one candidate in this country said that they opposed superannuation going to 12%. Not one. And certainly the government did not. So it's a covenant. But most important, it is the extra dignity that is required in the generations ahead. It's the extra two or three years of retirement the extra two or three years of security for people that is at stake here. It is the inequality that is removed for those people dependent upon uh, the SGC. The higher paid people are fine. They'll take it up to 25,000, they'll take their tax break. But those dependent upon the SGC are the vulnerable people who need it now and that will need it then. 
they are the vulnerable people. And if you don't increase it, then they're at risk. It is their two or three years of extra dignity. Now, the one thing that is absolutely certain... I'm going to ask you to wrap I'll up. Just finish, I'll just finish. The one thing that is absolutely certain is that the problem of ageing is not going away and that the economy is not remaining the same. And they are impacting upon one another. Superannuation is a key issue for ensuring that the future generations of Australians have a decency and we're able to sustain one of the best retirement systems in the world. Bill, thank you so much. And uh, forgive me for rudely interrupting Bill and others through the morning. I'm trying to keep us on schedule, if at all possible. We're now going to go to Heather Riddell. Thanks very much, Jamila. And, and good to be part of this very important panel and to share it with people like Bill and John, who I haven't worked with so closely over the years. And can I also um, comment on um, the fact that the Wujuri people, and it's good to be on their land, I pay my respects to their, part, their, their elders past and present. Um, a friend of mine, a board colleague, sent me the latest international rankings of government pension plans around the world, and this is done every year. And again, Australia is one of the top three in the world, along with the Netherlands and, ben, ben, and Denmark. And, and it's based on adequacy, sustainability and integrity of our system. And, it's, and we rank right up at the top. And as Bill said, that's what we set out to do. And a lot of the features of the Australian system, which are, include the compulsory contribution nature of it and the defined contribution nature of it, actually make it stand out as a, a fantastic system. And it's interfaced with the Australian government pension system, which we sought to address as part of designing the system, was also part of the, the great strength. So the, the strengths that were built and designed into this system are, are really standing us in good stead. And as Bill said, we are the envy of the Western world and we're particularly the envy of the Western world because we have a defined contribution system that can have a material impact on the retirement um, comforts um, and uh, prospects of, of uh, ordinary people, of all people. That's why I asked the question, why do we keep trying to chip away and undermine and question whether we should have this system? Yes, we need to keep improving it. Um, last year, we uh, made some very important reforms about multiple accounts. We made some um, important reforms in, in other aspects of it as well. And there are a lot of unfinished areas of business in super. Uh, for example, the, the, the issues that Michelle raised around women in super, low, low, low accounts, and while super will never be the only silver bullet that's going to help that, it's absolutely vital that we look at the whole issue of women and retirement and women living in poverty. And also, the gig economy workers who are falling underneath this $450 threshold. And un un unhappily, during COVID, these two groups have been singularly most affected by the, the drop in employment and the drop in income. And coming out of this crisis, we need to think how super is going to help those people find their way back into the system. Super is super for Australia in many ways, but May, may in two key ones, it increases the retirement income, as we know, of all Australians and gives them dignity in retirement. And one of the things that I think is one of the big issues of the system, and it's been noted since 2014, when the, the last deferral wages grew by about 0.4% and GDP grew by six times that, let alone profits. But the other issue is by delaying it then, 
the, the way workers missed out on the huge run up in capital gains in the stock market in other asset areas. And to me, one of the great strengths of our super system is that it gives working people and others who will never buy a thousand BHP shares or never buy a share of Ausgrid or any of these access to the, the capital improvements that others get it if they're part of the super system. Also, it super supports the economy. Australian super has 90 billion invested in Australia. That's about 6%, 6.5% of our GDP, whether it's in infrastructure, equities, property. And in fact, during this latest, over the, over the last several years, we've invested 2.5 billion in capital raisings to support companies. But in, the, in this COVID environment, it's approaching $400 million we've put into companies to help them weather the, the COVID-imposed recession. These are enormous strengths. And the Reserve Bank have done work that shows there's been a net increase in Australia's savings pool, savings pool because of super. And that's also one of the fault lines that, of this debate. Going forward, we should be focusing on strengthening the system, not undermining it. Australians. The biggest concern that we find in Australian super about people over 50 approaching retirement is they won't have enough money. And our system of 9.5% uh, of the mature system will be, be helpful, going to 12% will make it absolutely uh, you know, guaranteeable. And the other issue is, as Bill said, with the ageing of the population, what we'll find is more people will have their retirement at the behest of politicians, the behest of the budgetary strictures of whether they can afford to put more money into the system, into the old age pension. This system gives people control over their retirement. It gives them some guarantees. To deny strengthening that system, to deny going to 12%, will mean they'll be worse off and they'll have to work longer. And that is not something we should impose on, on, our, on Australia and a country as wealthy as this. So thank you, Jamila. Thank you so much, Heather. John, we'll go to you now. Oh, thank you very much, Jamila. Look, it's a pleasure to be here and I too pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we're all meeting, wherever we are this morning, and uh, my respects in particular to their elders, past, present and emerging. And let me say, when we're talking about longer term strategic challenges in this country, one of the biggest and most significant and most embarrassing, because we've let it slide for about 250 years, is to give our first Australians proper recognition in the constitution, voice in parliament and, and in broader economic and social affairs. So I think that's a challenge that we should all admit and get on with. I'm surprised governments, whatever persuasion, haven't embraced it with the enthusiasm that they should have. Uh, when I come to super, look, this is not a political issue. This is not about political expediency. It's not about the COVID recovery or the need to, to exit the, the COVID recession, the COVID induced recession. It's about longer term strategic challenges, an important one being, uh, you know, to adequately prepare workers to afford their, their retirement. That's a very commendable national goal. Uh, it's a, a challenge in those terms, therefore, to stay with it, to stick with the path that's been started by Bill and others uh, some a couple of decades ago now. Uh, it's a long term strategic challenge. It's a challenge for good and responsible government got nothing to do with the other short-term factors that can be used as an excuse. Unfortunately, of course, the LNP, the Liberal National Party, has got a pretty, pretty uh, disappointing track record when it comes to compulsory super. And Howard scrapped, for example, the original 3% employee contribution when he came to power in 96. And Abbott deferred the path to 12%, the legislated path by the Gillard government, 
uh, by six years, from two, to 2019 to 25, leaving employer contributions stuck at 9.5% until the middle of next year. And so the debate today is whether we can go the next 0.5 of 1% in the middle of next year, having seen that uh, significant delay and erosion of the credibility of the system in those five or six years. Of course, the government is now finding any argument not to do it. Uh, the wage impacts, of course, as others, Bill and uh, Heather have both mentioned, um, and uh, the weaker growth, the weaker job prospects, whatever argument they use. But if you step back, you have to wonder if their aim is basically not to kill off compulsory super altogether. And we'll find, you know, in those terms, it's never a good time for them to think about doing it because they don't actually want to do it. Uh, it's not saying, of course, that the present retirement system, its three pillars are uh, as good as they could be. I mean, uh, we focus on the compulsory superation contributions, we focus on the pension, and we focus on the capacity of individuals to provide additional uh, superannuation contributions. Uh, but we know the system discriminates against women, and seriously so, as Michelle has pointed out, discriminates against low-income earners, it discriminates against casuals. Uh, the super concessions that people might take advantage of are skewed heavily in favour of the wealthy. And of course, the pensions asset test doesn't really include anything to do with wealth. It's an income test, it's an income and assets test, but it doesn't recognise, for example, the main asset that most people have, which is the family home. So in any of those areas, there's room for considerable improvement of the existing system. As well as it's been, as well as it's done, it can do, it could be even better. <clears throat> I think it's a mistake also to have allowed uh, access to superannuation during the COVID process. I mean, it is working against young Australians who are already, along with casuals and women, significantly adversely affected by the recession itself. So, and you know, you're taking, as Michelle has pointed out, uh, about a, hundred, you know, a significant amount of money, let's say, out of their potential retirement benefit by, by what, the way they've been treated. Uh, many of them have been excluded also from JobKeeper through this, this process. So I think the COVID recovery, of course, is um, it becomes a, an asset test to look at this issue, a longer term strategic issue in the context of the desperate need to recover from the COVID recession. Uh, it's a test of the government's capacity to think longer term. It's a test of the government's capacity to think strategically. And it's a test of whether they can stick with a reform agenda uh, that um, is clearly in the national interest. Uh, it's time to me, to my mind, to stick with that agenda and to finish the job. When we boast in Australia about the e-calendarian nature of our society, and Bill pointed out that focus of this issue really is about the dignity and financial capacity of workers uh, in their retirement. Um, we boast of our fairness. We should do something about ensuring that it continues. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And now to Emma from Per Capita. Emma, this won't be the first time you're on mute, my friend. Sorry, I had to go out and come back in again. That's the phrase of 2020, isn't it? You're on mute. Um, thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. And I also pay my respects to the people 
of the Kulin Nation. I'm on Bunurung land here in Melbourne and land that was never ceded. Um, this debate to me is hugely frustrating. As Michelle um, alluded to earlier on, per capita crunched the numbers back in February and found that since the super guarantee, the increase in the SG rate was frozen the last time in 2014, a worker on the median wage has lost over $4,300 in super that they would have otherwise got. And at the same time, their real wage has declined by $1,000 a year. So there has been no wage growth. In fact, real wages have gone backwards at the same time as people have lost out on that significant chunk of money that would otherwise be uh, getting compound interest and building towards a dignified retirement. The argument that super comes out of wages or that it leads to lower wage growth is particularly uh, spurious at the moment because we're in a recession and it's very hard to achieve wage growth in a recession. So as Michelle said, uh, so workers will either get the SG rise or they'll get nothing. And they've had nothing now for six years in terms of real, real wage growth in their uh, growth in their take home pay. The CAP has done a lot of work on the impact of, of the SG on women. Most recently with Women in Super Australia, we looked at what we called the her story of superannuation and found, and this is no surprise to anyone, any of the panellists here today, that before compulsory super or universal super was in, introduced, under the accord, um, about 40% of men in Australia were covered by some private scheme of super, some um, individual workplace scheme, but that coverage for women was only 15%. And that was because of the inherent biases in those private systems. They were often available only to full-time workers, um, often available only to those that were in senior positions. There was no vesting so that um, workers that left their employer, as women do more often because of career interruptions, weren't able to take that super with them. And often there was overt bias as well, where women weren't allowed to apply for a scheme, particularly if their husband was already in one. So universal super massively leveled the playing field for women. And if we actually look at who's, uh, who's affected by the SG rise now and this argument uh, that even some on the left will make to say, well, it's, it's inequitable, the costs of it are too high. If we increase it, the benefit mainly goes to high income earners. I've been looking into that recently with Industry Super Australia, and that's also untrue. So only around half of higher income earners rely on the, the SG rise. Half of them, uh, and I'm talking about professionals, high income executives, people in the public sector, um, the public service, politicians themselves, academics, the type of people that had super through private arrangements before universal super came in, they now receive already a much higher rate than the guaranteed rate. They're on sometimes 12, 15%. And even if they're not, they're salary sacrificing and taking advantage of those tax benefits. Overwhelmingly, the people who will benefit from a rise in the, in the compulsory rate of super are those earning under 75,000 a year. And they're more likely to be women than men. 53% of them will be women, 47% of them will be men. Um, while only half of high income earners will, will benefit from a, an increase in the SG rate, two thirds of tradies, community service workers and admin workers and clerical workers rely on that SG rate and three quarters of people working in sales, machinery operators, drivers and labourers re rely on that SG rate. So we're being told by people in the parliament who are on 15.6% that we can't afford a rise for the lowest paid and those that do such essential work in our society. At the same time, we have a Prime Minister who was Treasurer a few years ago said that the, pension, the age pension should no longer be re regarded as a right and that there's no, there's no guarantee that that will be available to people in future generations. 
to, so to argue that people, uh, working people and those on lower incomes would be better off on the pension is pretty spurious when you don't have a, a, an open commitment to making the pension a livable rate of income. Uh, Australia actually has amongst the highest rates of pension poverty in the OECD. We have uh, about 34% of single older women over the age of 60 live in permanent income poverty because they rely on the pension. The pension itself is at least $10 below the poverty line. So while we have a very poor performance in terms of our age pension, we have an excellent world-class superannuation and private savings system that not only ensures that people who have worked in underpaid, often um, under-recognised jobs all their lives, have access to the kind of dignity in retirement that 30 or 40 years ago was only available to the professional class, but that's built a huge pile of private savings that mean Australia is in a position now to have a great deal of um, liquidity available for investment as we try to rebuild our society out of this uh, crisis. The final thing I'd like to note is that the um, recent raid on super through the early access scheme, again, is likely to disadvantage women more than anyone else. So we know that before going into uh, the, the crisis, the superannuation savings gap between men and women aged between 25 and 34 was about 23%. After the withdrawal scheme, we know that women have been more likely to wipe out their account balances entirely than have men. And that savings gap now, we estimate it being at about 45%, which is the same as we found it was for baby boomer women retiring today at 47. So the benefit for millennial women who are going into now those childbearing years without that money saved in their account, they've wiped that out, so it won't be doing the hard work of gathering interest for them while they're out of the workforce or working part-time to raise children. We've set them back to the same status as their grandmothers. So the benefits that were meant to be there for millennial women who would have received compulsory super throughout their working lives for a huge number of them, and we think it's at least 250 or 300,000 of them, that benefit has been wiped out by the early access scheme. These different forms of attack on compulsory super are ideological in purpose. There is a mindset that says if you're a working person, then you can expect nothing better than what we choose to give you on the age pension. Uh, and the, the modelling and all the assumptions and all the econ econometric um, calculations in the world can't take away from the fact that people want their own money in retirement. They want the agency of having control over their money and of feeling that they have some protection from being thrown on the mercy of the state. And that was one of the great achievements of the union movement and the Federal Labor Party in developing compulsory super. And make no mistake, if the argument for it to uh, remain at 9.5 or to become optional for low-income earners is realised by this government, they will be effectively destroying what is one of the greatest retirement saving systems in the world. Emma, thank you for that. We're now going to go to Cherie Clark. Hi, how are you going? Um, my story is a bit different. I don't work in the politics. I am a low-income worker. I'm an aged care nurse or assistant in nursing in a nursing home. I've spent my life doing the best I can in a broken system looking after our elderly. But now I'm facing the re reality of after a lifetime of working on a low income. Um, insecure work. We're only contracted to 15 hours per fortnight. But, um, my retirement looks like it's going to be ending in poverty. I've lost out 4,000 already in the freeze. 
Now, the fact that I'm already in a caravan park means that's um, secure accommodation for the first couple of years I retire. The reality of working longer into my 70s, we have a physically demanding job. I love what I do, but it takes its toll. So I cannot see myself working in this industry when I'm 70. Now, some politicians have said, get a better job. I see a broken system that needs quality carers for it. I love what I do with my job. It's an important role in our society, but feel like I need protection as well. That guaranteed rise of 12% gives me a choice of living healthier and longer independently before I come a statistic of a homeless person, of the old women. Cherie, can I ask, you're, you would be deemed an essential worker at the moment, someone we need to be leaving the house to go to work, uh, even during lockdowns and in various yeah. states. How does that stack up for you, this idea that you are considered essential and yet you've essentially been told, go and get a better job? You don't feel valued. You know, it's, it's you don't feel respected. I love what I do. Uh, elders deserve better. But so do the workers taking care of them. We have a hard job at a low income. One of the criticisms of the system has been that it assumes that many retirees will own their own home, that you can get by if you own your own home because that asset doesn't count towards the pension. For people who don't own their own homes, how does that feel as you're facing retirement? I'm already living in a caravan park, so I'm classified high risk of homelessness. So that guaranteed pay rise that was meant to happen over four years, is getting harder and harder to make ends meet while working. So I yeah, won't have that security of my own house by the time I retire. As a single person, there's no way I could afford it. You mentioned that the work you do is really physical, that doing that kind of work into yourself would be really tough. Can you tell us a little bit about the physical nature of that work. I worry sometimes we and we don't think about what the work actually involves and how tough it is on the body. So we're constantly on our feet all day. We are doing the showering, the caring, the feeding, preventing falls, having one fall on us. We put up with violent, aggressive residents. You basically don't stop all shift. You're emotionally torn because you don't have time to get between the residents' cares. So if you're rushing from one place to the other, yes, it's no lift policy, but the manual handling takes its toll on its body, especially with the larger, the population is getting larger now. So we're dealing with people up to 180 kilos. Cherie, thank you so much for your contribution, Bill. I'm going to come back to you. You said in your opening remarks that Australia envisaged retirement system when Super was first introduced. What does the best system look like for you today? Has your vision for Australians' comfortable retirement changed over time? Well, the best system looked like the system we were going to put in place. That is, you go to 15% and you allocate 3% of that for the extra ageing. People over 75, 80, so that you're starting to look for as a nation for the first time ever, after those 80 to 90 uh, year old people and the people who work uh, with them, uh, that you ensure that the pension therefore is able to be increased as the number of people on uh, relying upon the pension is reduced. Uh, that was the best system. 
15%, uh, specifically designed to deal uh, with the, the aged and very aged and raising the pension system as less people were dependent upon it. Uh, the best system now looks like, in terms of the short term, in the next, uh, go to 12%, at least cement that, uh, get rid of the problems which currently exist in superannuation and improve the wages system so that the underlying earnings of society is, is able to improve. Uh, they're the best systems in the world. Now, you've got to do both, and we have done both. The system actually has done both, notwithstanding uh, uh, the inadequacies of the pension. The pension in this country has increased substantially in real terms, primarily because less people are dependent upon it. So we've got to increase the pension, increase super to 12. I would think that there will be progressively over the course of the next decade or more, as people realise that people are living into the 80s and 90s uh, people will regret not going to 15%. People are already starting to regret not having the best uh, healthcare system for the aged. Well, starting to regret that already, and that's been apparent in terms of the recent crisis. That's what the best system looks like. as part of a safety net in which wages are adjusted regularly, superannuation is available, the Medicare system works. What, what is evident is that you have on display right now in the United States, the worst of a developed country. No decent na na national healthcare system, no decent retirement systems, an inadequate social security system. We actually know what the worst is. We know what the worst is in a developed country, and that's the sort of system that emanates from the United States recently. Uh, we should aim for the best. Fix up the problems. There are some problems. Women, because of, of generations of unequal treatment, generations of inequity, have, have I think, the right to claim uh, an inequity adjustment in terms of the superannuation system. And, and we've got to address that inequity by allowing special provisions, particularly for women who have lost out in that process. I mean, you only had to look be a teacher for example, in the 1960s, to understand that a, a female teacher didn't really get superannuation, a male teacher did. So when we superimposed a fairer system, the SGC, we didn't actually remove that long-term generational inequity which existed in terms of women. So you try to fix that up, you try to fix the low income up, you get it to 12%, at least get it to 12%. And then the nation should have a very serious look uh, whether that's adequate to look after the 80s and 90s. It's very serious look, because in 30 or 40 years' time, it will be apparent that the country made a very bad decision not going to 15% and not having the capacity to look after those aged people in the way that it should. John, if I can turn to you now. The country's delayed the legislated super guarantee increases in the relative good times. From a political perspective, are voters going to be persuaded to lose their appetite for those increases during the difficult times that now lie ahead? Look, it's an opportunity for leadership. It's an opportunity for dealing with a longer term structural challenge that was started a couple of decades ago and it needs to be finished. 
And it's no, it's it, it, it's not defensible to say, oh, the current circumstances are tough, uh, although tough, they're tougher than they were when 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 we delayed the decision. I mean, that's not an argument, <clears throat> that's an excuse, and uh, it's an excuse that's based, as people have said, perhaps more on ideology, and it is on an, an objective, honest and objective assessment of the system and, and and its weaknesses, and what it requires to actually be completed as a system. And I agree with Bill. I mean, we somehow drop back to the idea that 12% is adequate when people are living longer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think 15% may be the minimum that we should be considering, but do it in two stages, get to 12%, then go to 15%. It's a challenge for the government. It's a litmus test, as Keating said, about, you know, whether this treasurer and this prime minister really understands the issue of superannuation is prepared to lead on that issue. And if you want to play the electoral game, short-term populist sort of politics and claim expediency, you know, tough, tough times in a COVID recession, we can't afford it. That really is an irresponsible attitude. Heather, if I can turn to you now, do we need to have a broader conversation about the importance of superannuation? Is part of the problem that employers dominate the political debate and are given more time in the media, more time in the politicians' offices than workers who may have less of a handle on the importance, especially in their early years in the workforce? Well, look, I think the, um, the whole um, awareness of super and engagement with super is one of the big issues for the industry uh, of themselves. Until they approach retirement, people really don't pay an awful lot of attention to their super. And I think one of the, the important things behind you know, defined contribution schemes, compulsion, uh, is really about making those contributions happen early. People just watch them add up and get compound interest, get capital gains, etc. So I think engagement with the super system is always one of the, the biggest issues. I think there's you know, the, the employer pushback against the 12%, at least from the organisation I um, lead, was not about the 12% itself, it was about the timing and whether it, this is the right time, whether there's a trade-off with jobs. You can, the Reserve Bank and others have made that argument. My gut feeling is if not now, when? We should, we should push forward with it. But I think uh, the, uh, the engagement with the super system generally is, is one of the issues that I think has been a problem over the years. That said, I, I actually think COVID early release, um, I'm, not, I'm not a great fan of the policy. I frankly think um, really um, it's regrettable that workers ended up raiding, women and young people ended up raiding their, their retirement um, savings um, and really put a bigger stimulus into the economy than the increase in job seeker and other, uh, other payments alone, you know. So it was a, was a big call. While super should have done, it should do its part, I think you can make that argument pretty well. But it did raise awareness of super. And I think a lot, a lot of people are now much, paying much more attention to their super. The odd, the odd thing with the government was that they've made it possible for older people to only take half as much out of their super that, that the, the rules actually imply. You know, normally when you reach a certain age, you have to take out four or five percent a year. Well, they've actually halved that, like they did during the DFC. So we've had this weird time where older people can hold on to it for longer and younger people can take out as much as they like. As Jane Super, we had four and a half billion taken out by 600,000 people, a lot of money. Um, so I think, you know, that is regrettable, even though super needs to do its part. It's a big national savings pool. Uh, you know, it, it is regrettable. 
Emma, if I can go to you now, several of the panelists have talked about uh, the lower superannuation balances of women and other vulnerable groups. Are you able to talk us through how that happens? I think we all know, okay, a woman has a baby, she's out of the workforce for a bit, she doesn't get paid superannuation during that period. But can you talk to us about how that accumulates and the other factors that are involved in women retiring with around just over half the superannuation balances of men? Yes, Jamila. It's, a, it's what we've described at per capita as a wicked problem in that it has many uh, causal factors and, and it's not a simple issue to resolve. Um, one of them, of course, and the, and the fundamental one is that the superannuation system was designed around a male breadwinner model of work uh, in that you go to work full time, you work full time uninterrupted for 40 or 50 years and then you retire with that income. For women and increasingly for younger men as well, that's not always the case. It's very rarely the case. Australia has amongst the highest rates of part-time work amongst women in the OECD. We have a very stubborn adherence here to the, the kind of neo-traditional model of the family where the man works full-time and the woman works part-time and takes care of children. It's also exacerbated by the fact that women tend to work, we have high levels of gender segregation in our industrial base, much more so, again, than comparable OECD nations. So women tend to dominate fields that are relatively underpaid. And even at the award wage level, um, there is at least a 10% gender pay gap based on the way that we value women's work. And what Cherie was saying earlier really speaks to that. You know, the work that she does is amongst the hardest and most important jobs uh, in our society, caring for vulnerable elderly people. And yet most of those uh, care attendants, nurses, aides, as, as I was called when I did it years ago, um, are amongst the lowest paid. So there's gendered, um, low, low gendered pay, there's time taken out of the workforce to have children or to care for other adults. It also tends to be overwhelmingly women that care for elderly parents or relatives with illness or disability. And then there's the fact that Australian women are more likely to work part-time. Um, so all of these things accumulate over the life course to mean that women can't save the way that men can save. And if you actually look at the time that women are likely to come out of the workforce in their 30s, that's the time that um, people tend to move up the career ladder. So even for professional women, um, they're missing out on those promotions, on those senior roles, because that's when they take time out of the workforce. Um, so I, I know where I, I know where Cherie's coming from. I did that job. It is I've worked for a cabinet minister in a federal government, and being an aged care attendant is still the hardest job I've ever had, um, but also very rewarding. But then my life took a different turn, and so I actually worked full time right through my thirties. I didn't have my child until I was forty, um, and I worked in jobs that gave me fifteen percent super. I was in the in the tertiary um, university sector and in government, and so I actually have a healthier super balance than most men my age. But it's because of that uninterrupted work pattern through my 30s to get to a relatively high income bracket and having 15% super. That's what made the difference for me. So actually the rate of super is really important for women because they do miss out on um, months and years of earning. Uh, and so a higher level is more likely to give them that cushion in retirement. How do you feel when you hear those kind of comments from Emma and when she talks about the impact for women of working in the caring professions, particularly aged care, like you? I, I dropped my little boy off at childcare this morning for the first time since March. I, you know, I'm not allowed to kiss the educators there, but oh my gosh, I elbow tapped with a lot of gratefulness. I know how, how tough those jobs are and really felt it this year. And um, how does that... Uh, 
make you feel when you hear that the caring professions, particularly those feminized caring professions, are the professions where you're going to do it toughest in retirement? I think that's where um, society's values have changed. Like we don't see compassion and care and respect as a commodity or something to be made. But I do believe they are a reflection of how we see society. If we can't look after our most vulnerable and those who look after them, it doesn't say much for our economy. <clears throat> when you talk to friends and colleagues on do you think the awareness is there of the importance of building superannuation balances, particularly younger colleagues who might be further away from retirement? No, the education is not there around financial resources. Um, I think we all need better skilling and it's very hard when you're living week to week to plan for 20 years down the track. Like I know so many of my colleagues have um, cashed in on that super to their own detriment in the future. Bill, I'm going to come back to you. Can you talk us through the politics a little bit from your perspective? And if you were right now running the messaging campaign that was saying to the public, this is important, this matters, you need to be fighting to make sure these increases go ahead, don't let the government rob you of what's legislated. How would you be selling that message to the Australian? Well, I think it's a very simple proposition to sell. because You've got two groups of people. Uh, the members of parliament who are, you know, I'm not anti-members of parliament, never have been in my entire life. But members of parliament are getting 15.6% in terms of their super. In terms of the COVID crisis, and it's the right public response. It's the right public response. These are public decisions made correctly in order to close the economy. These are the right public decisions, but they are public decisions. They are public decisions. Uh, whilst a member of parliament is 15.6%, has no reduction in wages, no reduction in salary, no reduction in part-time work, they're not asked to take their annual leave, they're not asked to take their long service leave, but ordinary workers out there, ordinary workers out there's response to these public decisions, correct public decisions by, I may add, are asked to take their annual leave, their long service leave, they're asked to work part-time, they're asked to take their money out of superannuation. And in addition, in reward for that, in reward for that, they said, we've got one other thing for you. One other thing, in addition to all the pain that you have to bear as a result of this public decision, we're going to do something really good for you. We are not now going to give you your superannuation increase next year. And by the way, you might be a bit lucky and get it in wages. There's no evidence you'll get it in wages. Not the slightest bit of evidence you'll get it in wages. This is cruel. This is simply a set of cruel, unfair policies being imposed upon a community if they take off the super. People have got to make the adjustments, but you can't expect people who have no commitment, gave no commitment that they would change the superannuation, are not prepared to take any reduction themselves, who get paid 15.6%, you can't say that to, to a community. It is just a cruel to take superannuation off them. It's just simply cruel. On, on a pious hope that they may get a wage increase when there's no evidence that they will get such a wage increase. This is not the time to do this. This is the time to build cohesion and consensus and get people to work together and make the sacrifices collectively to deal with this problem. This is a time for mature, 
collective responses to deal with the underlying issues in terms of wages, the underlying issues in terms of the economy. But whatever you do, don't make it even harder and unfairer on those people. They just don't deserve it. They simply do not deserve it. You've seen examples. Why, why is it that anybody would contemplate this madness other than some cheap political uh, view? It is not the right time. Workers are entitled to their benefits, so they're making huge sacrifices. This is the time to get the nation to pull together, make collective decisions, work maturely in order to advance the policy. John Hewson's right. This never was about the Labor Party versus the Liberal Party. We wouldn't have done it because, in fact, I think politically, uh, the Liberal Party probably get more votes out of superannuation than we do. But it, it never was about cheap politics. It never was about uh, class warfare against employers. We work constructively with most of the employers in the end to construct this system. It was a mature, collective, political response to a generational issue. But this would be terribly, terribly unfair to take superannuation increases of workers when they've already had to pay a huge price, already had to have. It is not the time. It is wrong. It is just patently wrong. John, I'm going to go to you. You came up a little bit there and you spoke about egalitarianism and Australia's commitment to an equal society in your opening comments. Do you want to respond to Bill? Oh, look, I agree with what Bill just said wholeheartedly. Look, um, one of the slogans that's been overworked in COVID, uh, you say um, unprecedented is a word that's been overworked, but all in it together has been overworked when we clearly aren't in it all together. And in particular, the government has refrained from actually bearing any of the pain. They haven't cut, for example, their own salaries. And here they are arguing for a 50, to maintain a 15% benefit for themselves in super when they're probably denying everyone else the transition from 9.5 to 12%. I mean, it's unbelievable. What does it take to embarrass our political leadership to actually share the burden properly and, and to, to provide an example, to be an example, to be a leader? I mean, uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand cut parliamentary salaries for a period. I mean, and I'm amazed that this government wasn't prepared. Actually, we were asked several times specifically, will you do it? And they've said, no, you know, we won't. We don't think we have to. Well, there's a lot of pain out there. And a lot of the facts that we're talking about, the access that people have had to make to their super, in some cases, that came from bad policy too. JobKeeper didn't actually extend to a lot of casuals and lower income workers and women that would otherwise have actually not needed to go to their super. Uh, and these sort of issues, are, you can't just keep turning a blind eye to your incompetence and insensitivity. And that's what they do. Heather, we've got a question here from Jeff Ferry, who said superannuation has been an incredible Australian success story and is far too important to become a political football. How do we work with employers, unions and government to take the politics out of this issue? Well, I think um, what John's saying, we have to try and focus on the strategic nature of it, the long-term nature of it, and look through political cycles. This is about long-term value creation for, for working people in Australia. So it is so important that we do look at it in that long-term way, Jamila, which is so often lost 
I mean, I think there's an ideological battle about compulsion, the union involvement in it, which is underneath a lot of the reticence and or reluctance of people to actually support continuing to um, strengthen the system. And that's greatly frustrating because one of the things we should be aware of in Australia is that we have through the industry fund model, the very best model for superannuation, profit for member funds. These are high performance, um, uh, very um, commercially disciplined outfits at their best. And they are delivering terrific long-term returns year in, year out uh, for members. And our model, it's not a profit that goes to shareholders. You know, the industry funds, the shareholders don't get any dividends. There are no commissions paid to people who are, are talking to people. The model we have in superannuation is a great one and it's delivering for people. And as Jeff would understand, people have confidence in that system. They trust that system. You know, the two biggest, um, uh, I think risks the super uh, preservation and we talked about it earlier with people being encouraged to take their money out for early release but it's not just that it's always do you take it out for housing etc so we've got to resist that the other one is to break down the issue of compulsion and there's a, still a lot of talk of whether we should have an opt-in or opting opt-out system and as that report that I referred to in my early remarks said one of the great attributes in Australia is that it's a compulsory contribution system and it forces those young people who don't think about the future to start providing for it and wake up one day and find they've got healthy balances. So I think in business you need to be strategic okay we've had a we're in the midst of a crisis where you need to look at your cash and manage your business and keep it afloat but you cannot take your eye off the strategic nature of it and on superannuation we have to encourage employers and, um, and employees um, to be very focused on their super. And uh, coming out of it, I, I'd like to say that you, rather than just look at whether we um, change taxes on super or change the contribution, we do look at saying, what do we do for these young people that have taken a lot of money out? What do we do for the women that have, have actually also taken money out but are also even more disadvantaged? How do we construct a system for five years or 10 years where we try and make that up. Because and given we're going to be spending zillions of dollars here, Jamila, um, I think actually rebuilding some of those savings pools is something, not so much for the economy, because there's a lot of money in it, but for those individuals involved to give them some capability of um, actually restoring their balances. Emma, we've talked a lot about the impact uh, on women. Can you talk to me about some of the other vulnerable groups i think already we've mentioned this morning people living with disabilities and people working in the gig economy what makes them more vulnerable and what are the particular risks that we're facing for people working in those industries emma sorry you're on mute <laughs> the, the main risk obviously is if you're not classified as an employee and you're working in the gig economy you're not necessarily putting aside any super and very few of those sole traders um, um, and there are increasing numbers of sole traders in our economy much more so than they were when super was introduced um, who are either working in gig economy roles or as independent contractors uh, they're not necessarily saving at all now some of those at the higher end may have other savings vehicles but certainly gig economy workers and they tend to be 
be younger people. They're often um, newly mi new migrants to Australia, so new Australians, people from non-English speaking backgrounds, um, and people, again, people with disabilities who are in the workforce but can only work a, a, a limited number of hours. Um, the system isn't currently set up in a way that encourages them to save at all. Uh, compulsory super for all employees is absolutely imperative to ensuring that those that, that little bit of money is set aside because people uh, who live paycheck to paycheck don't save. And if you actually talk to people in that situation, they like super because they don't think about it as part of their take-home pay. It's something that automatically goes and sits there. Um, and if you actually look at the ACOS and University of New South Wales um, poverty report that came out a couple of weeks ago and found a, a hugely widening gap between uh, those at the top of the income scale and those at the bottom. The only savings and the only wealth that people earning under $40,000 a year have in this country is their super. They're not likely to be homeowners. Um, to suggest that they're going to get onto the property ladder now, particularly uh, in an area where there are jobs, um, is fanciful for anyone um, that's on that kind of salary. And so it's building, them, building a, a wealth nest egg that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And it is those vulnerable groups that we should be most concerned about. We don't hear anything from um, those who are attacking compulsory super and saying, well, it's too expensive, it's not efficient, um, about or altering the tax concessions and the settings that overwhelmingly favour high income earners. One of the reasons that super is expensive to the federal government is because of the foregone revenue that we lose by giving, you know, quite excessively generous tax concessions to the top 20% of income earners. Um, if those were altered uh, and that money was otherwise put to shoring up the incomes and the superannuation balances of low and middle income workers, uh, then we would not see an addition and a cost to the budget. And we would actually see um, an equaling of, of um, income and wealth equality, or you know, some reduction in that gap in income and wealth inequality. Um, and I can't talk about this, about the impact on people with disabilities and on women, um, and particularly on women retiring into poverty, without mentioning the late Susan Ryan, for whom this was an absolute passion, um, who of course was uh, known for championing the rights of, of women, of older people, and of the superannuation system. And I know um, that she'd be wanting us to uh, fight pretty hard for those groups uh, as this system's under attack. Thank you, Emma. Bill, we know a lot of employers pay above minimum superannuation requirements, including some you've been associated with over the years. How do you think employers will react if the legislated increase doesn't go ahead? As I said, they, they made those commitments on the basis of a political decision to increase superannuation to 12. If superannuation doesn't increase to 12, then that covenant between the unions and transport companies and postal companies and a whole range of other companies will be undermined because you, you will have increased the super on an understanding that the underpinning super will move to 12, then the underpinning doesn't move. That's a breach of faith. That's a breach of faith, not only to the employees, but it's a breach of faith to the employers who, who went out and made those decisions. So uh, those essential contracts are going to have to be reviewed. That creates uncertainty, unjustified uncertainty, for those employers who accepted the argument that this wasn't about politics, the society was moving progressively to improve the retirement position, and they were more than happy to move ahead of the timing in order to increase those rates. Uh, that is a very, very dangerous thing. 
together with the economy as a whole, as a whole, uh, that is not a good thing uh, for those businesses to be placed in that position or the employees. John, I want to go to you. Anna's asked in the comments about the likely internal politics at the moment. So is the public debate about cutting the super increase being driven by uh, a small number within the Liberal Party caucus? Or is this being driven from the top? Is this being driven by Morrison as a way of generating the debate to proceed a potential change? I'm not sure of the numbers, but I have no doubt about the prejudice of the leadership. And uh, that's where I think the bulk of it comes from. Uh, we've already had, uh, I think it was uh, Michelle who mentioned uh, some of Morrison's past comments about uh, superannuation. And um, I think it's been a, a, lingering, um, a lingering issue in the party. I, I, I could point out that when, when I was leader back in the early 90s and we were moving to compulsory super, I wanted people in the electorate to have a clear choice as to whether or not we really wanted compulsion. Because once you start that process, you need to finish that process. So we came up with a, put all the superannuation concession back in the pot and reallocated them on an incentive basis. And of course we lost. And I think that was a pretty persuasive argument that the, you know, people had made up their mind as to what sort of system they wanted. And so I think these judgments that get made in the leadership of the Liberal Party are very short term, very much for expedience. Uh, some simplistic naive belief that maybe by doing this you'll enhance your chances of winning the media today or winning the next election. But quite frankly, I think it's it, it's bigger than that. And people are looking at the government. It's a test of their maturity as a government, their capacity to govern in the interests of all Australians, not just some Australians. Uh, yeah, but you get conflicting messages. We're going to we're hearing we're going to have the the tax cuts brought forward. Now that's about a sixty billion dollar cut. Over, two, over three years, uh, about 80% uh, of the benefit goes to the top 20% of, of taxpayers and less than about 3% goes to the bottom 50% of taxpayers. So you are compounding the inequity of the system by that big decision. Why not take some of that 60 billion and deal with some of the inadequacies of the present system, whether it's the level of the pension or whether it's the gender gap in superannuation or whatever. I mean, that would send very clear electoral messages that I think would be positive. I actually think good, good policy, good evidence-based policy is good government and good politics with a relatively short lag. But they, you know, they just don't want to learn that lesson. We're going to go to a pre-recorded question now from Del. Del's a disability worker. She's in her 30s. She lives in Queensland and she's worked multiple different jobs at different stages of her life, but mostly in the disability sector. She's also the primary carer for her mother. Uh, Del, over to you. Hi, I'm Del. Uh, Dorcia, most people call me Del. I work in Queensland and I've worked in the disability and community sector for the last 15 years. Super is so important to me because I've seen what impact it can have on women in particular and people like my mother. My mother had to retire early due to no fault of her own um, after a surgery that went wrong um, and she found that she didn't have enough super. So now she relies on the pension and I supplement her income. She has nothing to show for all the years she's worked and she's worked since she was 14 years old. I know that when I retire with the freeze, I'm not going to have enough money to live on. And I will have to rely on the government 
to supplement that income and that's not enough money for me to have a quality of life or enjoy the retirement that I should get to enjoy after all the years of working. So I want to know why, what is it that the government's going to do to change the freeze and make it fair for all people of Australia, not just those that are lucky enough to earn enough money. I shouldn't get penalised for working in my industry. Emma, we might go to you uh, with that question because I think Dell's uh, experience, while it's very much unique to her, is also speaks to that of a lot of women who have caring responsibilities. If you had a message to government right now on behalf of Dell and her mum and people like them, what would it be? Um, can we start valuing care work? I mean, this is a, this is a it's relevant to the superannuation question, but it's relevant to a whole much bigger picture as well, which is that we don't value that care work, and it's fundamentally important work. Um, as Dell said, and as Cherie said earlier, they shouldn't be penalised for working in these industries. The answer to low, the low pay of feminised jobs is not to say, well, we have more women doing STEM subjects and, and being more like men. Um, I'm absolutely fed up of being told that the answer to structural problems that affect women is that women should be more like men. Um, we should recognise the value of the work that women do. Um, and it, that means as well, recognise that the work they do, uh, particularly unpaid care work, but also the low paid care work in the disability field, the aged care field, and early, even early childhood care and education, um, is incredibly important. And a cost to society that they are taking, like particularly unpaid care work, is, is unpaid work's roughly valuable to half of GDP. So the contribution they're making to society is incredibly valuable. Um, and to see those women now retiring into poverty and it mainly is the women that have spent their lives caring for others as Jane Caro says it's as if we say to them thank you very much for putting everyone else's needs ahead of your own now go and live in your car it's completely unsupportable um, and so to have a government that's not talking about about changing the 15.6 percent that they themselves get or the tax concessions that those on, on $180,000 a year are gonna get, or actually are talking about giving more tax cuts to those earning over $180,000 a year, to be saying to women like Cherie and Dell, well, I'm sorry, but you chose the wrong job and we don't value it. And so therefore you will work in grinding poverty all your life and retire into even greater poverty is completely unacceptable in a country as wealthy as this. So as John has said and as Bill has said, there is plenty of money in Australia. There's plenty of money in the system, but we're not distributing it fairly. And one of the guaranteed ways to do that is through a rise to the SG. Um, those that are the calling for it not to go ahead and saying it will come out of wages would scream blue murder if the government was to start imposing um, wage rises, unconditional, unarguable un, um, wage rises and legislation that forced companies to give a certain percentage of their revenue in wages. They're not doing that because they're not forced to do it. So this is the only means by which government on behalf of the people can compel business whose profit share over the last decade has been quite healthy and wage share has not, to give some of that wealth to working people. Thank you, Emma. And I'm going to hand over to Michelle. Thank you so much to our panel. You've been wonderful contributors. I wish we could have heard more from all of you, but you've made an incredible impression and I think sent a really important message during the brief time we've had together. Over to you, Michelle. 
Thanks so much, Jamila. And I also want to add my thanks to this extraordinary panel. I, uh, I, I'm just sitting here listening to each of you and the depth of experience and insight you bring to this discussion is quite breathtaking. And I, I only wish that those people that are um, arguing so fervently against the superannuation guarantee increase and against the compulsory nature of our scheme would take the time to have sat and listened to what you've just shared with us over the last hour and a bit. I, I just just am struck by, you know, what what a a uh, something we should be proud of. Here is an Australian superannuation system, a retirement saving system that, as we as many have said, is the envy of many in the world. Something that we should be incredibly proud of, well above and beyond politics. That we've built something really over this generation. Um, it is a relatively short period of time, but of course, what we've built is two thirds built. It's the roof is not yet on our house and the remaining increases in the superannuation guarantee is what's needed is to put that roof on our home. And it is about a home for people in retirement. It's about people literally having somewhere to live as we've heard from Cherie, but it's also about having the confidence that when you're older and when you're often not well, and when you're at a time of your life where um, you should be able to relax and enjoy um, the, the time you have left, that you, we should not be plunging Australian people into poverty. In a country as lucky as ours in so many ways, um, we should be able to deliver this. We should be able to deliver fairness, equality and dignity for all people and particularly for our elders. So I want to say thank you to Bill Kelty, to John Hewson, to Heather Riddout, to Emma Dawson, and to Cherie Clark, and also we were briefly joined by Del Brooks. Um, and Cherie, I want to say to you that um, the other panellists that we've got with us today spend a fair bit of their life doing this sort of thing. And uh, they did a fantastic job, but I want to particularly acknowledge that this is something that you don't do day in, day out. In fact, you do one of the most important jobs in the country day in, day out, but to have uh, contributed the way you have today and to give us that insight, um, I really want to say a special thank you to that. You've added something um, to this panel that has made a really, really big difference to it. So to everybody who's on the Zoom, um, uh, I want you to know from the Australian trade union movement, this is a fight that we are not giving up. We understand that this is a critical issue. We are not going to allow the government uh, to remove those increases that are scheduled and legislated and in fact promised. Um, we will be campaigning to ensure that we finish the job of building an adequate, fair, equitable retirement savings system for every Australian. So join with us in that. We'll be continuing this campaign. Thank you so much, Jamila, again, for doing such a great job bringing us all together today. And thanks everyone for joining us for this important emergency superannuation summit. For those who are keen to watch the discussion back, you can do so on the Australian Union's Facebook page. And I know there are a bunch of media who are watching today. If you have questions, those can be directed to the ACTU media team, who will be more than happy to assist. You can reach them at media 
at actu.org.au. Have a lovely rest of the day, everyone, and wash your hands.